So the Lord Jesus, this is a Monday, and he comes into Jerusalem on Monday riding on a donkey. And as he comes into the city, the people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King, glory to God in the highest. And he comes into Jerusalem, and he's walking among the people, and he's talking to them, and he's preaching to them and telling them about God, telling them about eternal life, eternal things. And as he comes to the temple, as we mentioned, the temple itself was a large building, and there were several um, courtyards, one which was the courtyard of the Gentiles. And the courtyard of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place where Gentiles could come, and they could worship the Lord and offer prayer to the Lord. And he looked that Monday at what was taking place in that, temp- in that temple courtyard area, and it was discouraging to his heart. It troubled him, but he left the city on that Monday. On Tuesday, he came back in, came back across the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, and he saw the thing that had disturbed him so much that Monday, and that was that people were there, and they were buying and selling uh, sacrificial animals for a profit that was exorbitant. They were marketing the things of God for their own profit, and the high priests were involved in this, and they were profiting from the people, taking advantage of the poor, and he was very upset so upset that he came in and he literally threw over the money changers' tables, threw, cast out the people who were merchandising the things, of the sacrificial system, the, the sacrifices, and he tossed them out of the temple courtyard. And he said, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. That was Tuesday. And he left the city of Jerusalem that day and he went back across to the Mount of Olives. On Wednesday... He comes back to the city. And I want to tell you something. Those who were involved in the merchandising of sacrifices, those who were the money changers, were very upset with what he had done. And so they gathered together a team. This is a SWAT team. I want to call them a pack of dogs. Wolves. And they basically come. And you remember, the whole city of Jerusalem is filled with people at this time. It is the time of the Passover. And it's, it's a time when the people have come to worship the Lord. And so the Lord is among the people, but He's not a stranger to them. They recognize who He is. There are crowds around Him as He teaches them the Word of God. And so the religious leaders send out three types of people. They're, they are the elders. They are the um, chief priests. And they are the scribes. And it's like they're taking him and they're cornering him into a corner to trap him. And they've got him cornered like a pack of dogs and they want to ask him a question. Who gave you the authority to do this? Fresh on their minds is the issue that took place the day before of the tossing out of the money changers and the throwing out of the sacrificial animals for a prophet. Who gave you the authority to do this? And Jesus asked them a question. He was unmoved in a sense by their pressure, the cornering. And it's almost like he, they've got him in this corner and he turns everything around and he turns it around so that they're now in the corner. And he's now asking them the question. Let me ask you a question. Okay? That's what he says. John the Baptist, was his ministry of God or was it of men? And now they're troubled. They go, okay, this is a trap. If we say of men... 
the people are going to rebel against us. But if we say of God, He's going to say to us, why didn't you follow Him? Why didn't you not follow God? And why did you not repent of your sins? Because that was the ministry of John the Baptist. Repentance toward God. And so they said, how do we answer? I know. We don't know. Yes, they did. They're lying. They're lying. They didn't know. We don't know, they said. When he says, neither will I tell you by whose authority I do this. But it's clear to me that the authority of the Lord Jesus is the same authority that John worked under. And so we have him trapped, but he turns the tables on this group of religious leaders. And he asks them a question. He tells them a parable. He says, let me tell you a parable. It's about a landowner who owns a vineyard. And he rents out the vineyard to uh, tenant farmers. And these tenant farmers uh, are supposed to make a profit and are to pay the owner for leasing the land. And so the owner sends um, people, servants, to collect the rent, and they won't pay it. Instead, they abuse those that he sends. They stone some. They kill some. And the Lord Jesus is clearly talking about how God is the landowner, how the religious leaders are the tenant farmers, and how the the fruit that he expects is repentance. And he got none. And instead, as he sent out his prophets to call the people to repentance, instead of getting fruit, they were stoned. Some of them were killed. And they were going to do the very same thing to him at the end of that week. And the religious leaders, the chief priests, and again, it's just a, a group, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all knew that he was speaking about him. And he shut their mouths. They no longer asked him any questions. But they went back. They left him at that moment. They went back. And now Jesus is back out in the crowd and he's ministering to the people. And he's talking to them about spiritual things and about God. And so they, the three groups of people that left say, hey, Pharisees, why don't you try it next? You guys come up with a plan. The Pharisees and the Herodians. You guys go back, team up together, and you go trap him. Let's get rid of this guy. That's their goal. Let's get rid of this guy. Why? Because he's undermining their authority as far as they're concerned. They want to be in charge. They don't want God in charge. They don't want God over, ruling over them. And so they send this group of Pharisees and Herodians. And again, they're like a pack of wolves and they're trapping him in the corner and they're pushing and pushing and pushing. But the people are listening to all of this stuff. And so he's asking the question. They ask a question. They thought through this one very carefully. And they start buttering him up. You're a teacher sent from God. You're only going to say what's right. Everything you do is great, blah, blah, blah. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Or not? And they think they've got him trapped. There's only one of two answers. We talked about this. Yes or no. If he says yes, it's right, he's going to lose the people. If he says, no, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to be charged with rebellion, with insurrection, with going against Rome. And then they can take, trump up the charges, take it to, uh, to, to Rome, basically the authorities, and say he has told people that they should not pay taxes to Caesar. By the way, it's interesting to note this, and we'll see this uh, in a few weeks. When Jesus was on trial, 
even though he did not say, do not pay taxes to Caesar, they trumped up those charges and said that is what he said. He did not say that. Instead, he said this. Somebody, show me a coin. Show me a quarter. Who's got a quarter here? This is how he would do it. Who has a quarter? Let me see it. Nobody has any change anymore. Give me a dollar. <laughs> All right. Whose inscription is that? Who is that? Washington. Okay. Do you agree? Is that who that is? And he would go through the crowd like this. Whose inscription is this? Who does this belong to? Washington. Okay. In those days, of course, it was Caesar. Whose image and inscription is on this coin? Caesar's. In this one, it's Washington's, of course. Render, we would say today, to Washington the things that are Washington, and to God the things that are God's. The question is, Caesar or Washington owns the coins, but you bear in your body the image of God. You were made in His image, in His likeness. Therefore, render to God the things that are God's. I don't know how my shot is, but how's your catch? <laughs> Pretty good. And so he turned the tables on them again. And the Pharisees were stumped. They had nothing more they could say. That was their best question. That's what they could, that was the best question they could come up with. And he turned it on them. They were not rendering to God the things that are God's. And so the, they left. And then they sent, they, they, they left the, the area and Jesus was again ministering among the people and ministering to the people and talking about spiritual things and things of God. And so they sent from them another group. Actually, they were in conflict in spiritual matters themselves. But they sent another group. This time it was the um, Sadducees. And the Sadducees don't believe in anything that is supernatural. They don't believe in anything that is True, really. They're the liberals of the religious community of the day. And they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they come up with this ridiculous uh, scenario of a woman who marries a man. They're, they're married together. The husband dies. And under the law, if a man and a woman were married and, they died child, and the man died childless, his brother was to marry the widow and raise up a child for him. And so they said, and that's what happened. And so they've got him again. They've got him cornered. And they're asking this question. Okay, so now this is how it happened. One man died. His brother married the widow. Then the brother died. Again, they're childless. And again and again, seven times this happened. And finally the wife or the, the widow died herself, childless. Ha, 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 they laugh. In the resurrection... Whose, whose wife is she going to be? It's a joke to them. This whole idea of the resurrection, and they've told this story in such a way to make it a joke. It can't be, there can't be a resurrection. Look at, if this scenario panned out, how ridiculous it is. And Jesus said, you're the ones in error. Who is Jesus? He's God. He knows about the resurrection. He knows about eternal things. He knows what takes place in heaven. They surely don't. And he says to them, you're in error. 
not knowing what it's going to be like in heaven. For we're going to be like the angels, sexless. There won't be weddings and marriage like there is on earth. Marriage is for this life. It's not for heaven. And then when it comes to the resurrection that you're joking about, let me tell you something. Do you remember the passage of the the burning bush passage he says to them? Well, of course they would remember that. It's when God revealed himself to Moses and described himself as the I am, Jehovah. They would remember that. And he says to them, what did he say to Moses? He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At that time in history when he said that to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's bodies were lying in the grave. They were dead. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God, present tense, at that time when their bodies were lying in the grave. What does that mean? That they were very much alive and that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he threw over their whole idea of the resurrection by one simple word, I am, not I was. They're stumped. Every group that came to him, and notice they're all religious people who came to him. They're all religious leaders who came to him. And they were all stumped. They were all shown to be liars, frauds, people who doubted and did not believe in the word of God. And these were the people leading the the children of Israel. So, One man comes, and he's been listening to the whole thing. He's heard all of the questions. He's heard all of the answers. And he's beginning to think in his heart, wow, (laughs) he's really showed them. He's really told them. And he comes through the crowd, and he's a Pharisee. He's a scribe. The Bible says that. And he says, and we'll look at it on the screen here. Do you have that, Luke? He says, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers the question, and he says this, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. This is the greatest commandment, he's saying. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, notice this, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared answer him or dared question him. Here's the point. This one man comes out from the crowd. He's one of them. He's one of them. He's a scribe. He's a Pharisee. And he comes out and he asks, you've answered all these questions well. But the most important question is, what is the greatest commandment? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, the scribe says, you've answered well. That's exactly right. Jesus answers all things well. And Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. And I believe that that is why Jesus spent that final week in Jerusalem. Because there were souls just like this man that were not far from the kingdom. They were asking the questions. Listen to this about this man. He knew the truth. He knew the right answer. He was one step away from salvation. One step. What was that step that he would have to take? He knew it here. He had the right answers right here. He parroted them. He said, you're right. And he quotes back to Jesus what Jesus had just told him. He knew the right words. What is the difference between someone who knows about God and someone who knows God? It's the difference between knowing it here in the head and believing by faith in your heart. And that's what the Scripture says. If we look at Romans chapter 10. He knew the truth. He heard the truth. But did he believe the truth? And Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says this, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And let me ask you a question. How close are you to salvation? This man was not far, Jesus said. How close are you? Are you this close? One step away. And you just simply haven't said, Lord, I believe everything I've heard. I believe everything I've been taught. Now I believe in you as my personal Lord and Savior. Take that final step if you haven't already. Take that final step. That is the difference between heaven and hell. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, finally, when their questions are exhausted, there is silence. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, elders, chief priests, all of them have been stopped. Their mouths have been stopped. They dare not ask him any more questions. But there's still a question to be answered. One final question to be answered. And that question cannot be asked by any of them. This question is the most important question of all. And it's asked by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what we see next. That's where we come to our passage this morning in Luke chapter um, 20. But I want to set this up just right, okay? We have something in the Bible called the synoptic gospels. It's a big fancy theological word for three gospels that tell similar story, this story almost identically. There are some differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, different reasons for the differences. But if we look at all three passages this morning in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're going to find that they all need to be taught together 
for us to get a full and complete picture, and I'm going to show you why. So take a look, first of all, at Matthew um, chapter 22. We'll have it up on the screen here. So Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, this is now Jesus asking the questions, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's the important question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now I'm going to read the whole section. Then they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Mark chapter 12, verse 35, parallel passage. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now to our passage in Luke chapter 20, verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Jesus asks the question. He is the one presenting to them now the most critical question that they need to face. And it really, it is the most critical question that we need to face. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What do you think about the Christ? This is the central question that you must answer. Who is the Christ? Many people claim to believe in God. Jesus said to his disciples, you believe in God. Believe also in me. What was he saying? You believe in God. Believe also in me. He is putting himself on the very same level as God. People just don't do that. And specifically, Jewish people don't do that without being stoned. But that's what he was saying. I am God. You believe in God? Believe also in me. That's who he is. But the religious leaders were rejecting his claim in spite of the fact that they had seen his miracles. Don't you remember? He had turned water into wine. He had made the blind to see. He caused the lame to leap for joy. He caused the sick to be raised up. He healed the, uh, the, the lame, the maimed, the ones who had um, uh, leprosy. He caused the, the uh, people who couldn't speak to speak. He fed thousands with a few loaves and fish. He even spoke to the elements and said to the waves and to the wind, peace, be still. Every time I, I say that, peace, be still, I'm reminded, I probably told you the story of, an, of a wife of one of the interns years ago who had uh, little children who were just going crazy driving her nuts, absolutely bonkers in her head. 
And uh, she told her little kid one day, she says, just stop it. And she was all, you know, red face and everything else. And the child looked at her and goes, Mom, peace, be still. <laughs> it's one thing to calm your mom. It's another thing to calm the winds and the waves. And that's what Jesus did. He's God. He has control over all of the elements. Demon world as well. And they saw all of this. They knew all of this. And he had the power to raise the dead. He had power to heal the sick. He had power to forgive sins. And he received worship. He is the Christ. But they denied that Jesus is the Christ. These religious leaders claimed to know God, but they were far from him. So if someone says to you that they know God, but in fact they don't, what are they? They're liars. That's what the Bible says. They're liars. Someone tells you, yeah, I know God, but they really don't know God. They're liars. Listen to what 1 John says. 1 John 2, 22, it says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. If you do not confess the truth about who Jesus Christ is, you don't know God. If you don't acknowledge that He is God, you don't have the Father either. The Scripture says of Jesus that He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. And that in the same passage in Colossians 1, it says, It pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead should dwell in bodily form. Amazing statement of His deity. The fullness should dwell. So Jesus is stressing here His divine nature. He is stressing that He is God. And when He asks the question, What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? He's waiting for their reply to see what they really believe in their heart. And so they come back to him with a stock answer. David's son. That's who he is. Who is the Christ? David's son. Is that a true answer? Yeah, it is. It is a true answer. He is David's son. Is it a full and complete answer? No, it is not. It's a partial answer. It is not the full and complete answer. So let's take a look at 2 Samuel 7.12. Did God promise David a son who would sit upon his throne, who would um, uh, be the Christ? He's, yes. 2 Samuel 7.12. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. When is this going to take place? When David is alive or when David is dead? When he's dead. Okay, you're paying attention. That's good. He says, after you die, I am going to raise up a seed, and he will come after you, David's son, and I will establish his kingdom. The promise is repeated in Psalm 89. Several times, 
Make no mistake about it. It is prophesied in the Old Testament. And they believed the promise. The Messiah, the Christ, would be David's son. It says it plainly in Scripture. And that's what they taught. All the people knew that. They taught that the Messiah would be a man. But only a man. Oh, he would be a great man. He would be a man of great power, a man of great wisdom, a man who would uh, establish his kingdom, a man of great authority, of great prominence. He would be the king. And he would rule, if you look at all the prophecies, he would actually rule over the whole earth. And so if you look at the prophecies, he'd be a great man. But in their minds, only a man. That's all he would be, just a man. Jesus, was he a descendant of David? Yes, he was. In fact, if you look at the lineage of Jesus, there are two um, accounts of his chronology, if you will, of, of his, uh, of his um, lineage all the way back. One is all the way back to Adam and one is all the way back to David. And so if you trace back his heritage, you find that he is a son of David. It's his, his by right. But you know what? You could trace a lot of people back to David because after David, David had a lot of kids. He had more than I did. <laughs> it's a lot of kids. And they had a lot of kids. And the kids kept coming. And so there were a lot of people who were from the line of David. And Jesus was a son of David. And that's what they thought of him. They would know his pedigree. He claimed to be a son of David. If they thought that he was lying, they would have quickly gone to the temple, pulled the genealogical records and said, no, you're not. They knew. They knew he was a son of David. But that's what they thought of him. A son of David. Not the son of David who would be the Messiah. He was just one of many. But you know what? I believe that there were people who were living at that time who recognized Jesus to be the son of David. And we have an account of that several places in the scripture. Do you remember the two blind men? As Jesus was walking by one day, and they said this to him in uh, Matthew 9.27, Have mercy on us, son of David. They didn't say that to any other sons of David, but they said it to him. They recognized who he was, even though they were blind. They had better sight than the religious leaders. Son of David. Jesus healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And the people asked themselves, after they saw this, they said, could this be the son of David? Could this be the, the son of David? Even a Canaanite woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon, she came to Jesus and they cried out to him, she cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. In Matthew 20, 30, two blind men again by the side of the road wanted to be healed, and they cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And on Monday of this same week, the crowd swelling into the city of Jerusalem, as they cried out, Hosanna, they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They recognized in whatever way, who he was. Some people recognize that he was only a son of David by birth. 
but he was the son of David, the promised one who would come and reign on David's throne. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David. There are many in the line of David, but only one who could be the son of David. Now he turns to the Pharisees and he asks them directly, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered, as I said, in the traditional way, David's son, son of David. But they don't go far enough. They are basically saying the Messiah, the Christ, will be a man, only a man. He'll be a great man. He'll be a great influence, great power, great wisdom, great authority, all of these things, but he will be just a man. But Jesus doesn't leave them that option. If Jesus is, and when people say this today, oh, Jesus was a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a great influencer over humanity. He was a, a, um, a powerful man, a, a man of great wisdom, a man of great authority. But he's only a man. They are totally missing the point. Jesus doesn't leave us that option either. Jesus is either God or he is entirely a fraud. You can only have one of those choices. He's either God or he's a fraud because he claimed to be God. Luke chapter 21. The Lord does an amazing thing here. He asked them, um, and the reason I wanted to go to the three passages that, that describe this event is because they have little bits of information in, uh, that are different in each passage that are important for the whole story. So he asks the religious leaders, the Christ, whose son is he? And they answer, the son of David. So then he turns away from the religious leaders and he talks to the crowd. And he's basically saying now to the crowd, really? Really? You heard them say that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the son of David. Is that all he is to you? And he's looking at them. I can just see him looking at them straight in the face. Is that all he is to you? Why then, if he is only the son of David, and that's kind of the, the thrust of what he's saying here, why is it that if he's only the son of David, does David himself call him Lord? Good question. Good question. Demands an answer. Luke chapter 21, 42. David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Important question. So if we go back to the Old Testament... Where this is quoted from, it's Psalm 110, verse 1. It's a short psalm. Very first verse is where this is quoted from. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And this particular psalm is what is called a messianic psalm. It's, what that means is this. It's a psalm that describes what the coming Messiah will be like. He is Lord. And in this psalm, you see a number of things. One of the things that you see is that he is powerful. He is great. He is um, coming. He is 
reigning. He is the enemy defeating Messiah. And the psalm points to the fact that his kingdom would extend from Jerusalem over all people. It prophesies that the Messiah will crush his enemies and he will strike down the kings of the earth and that his kingdom will extend over all the earth. This is a messianic psalm par excellence. It's a great, great psalm talking about the reigning Messiah, the Christ. And we know that the one um, who David is quoting here is a coming ruler. But David, at the time he's quoting or writing this psalm, is actually the one who is the ruler. He's the king. He's the one in charge. And yet he's writing this psalm. And he calls him my Lord. Now, do you notice in the psalm, if you have, I don't know if you have it up on the screen or not, but if you have your Bibles, Lord is printed two different ways in this section, okay? And this is a good Bible study. There are two different words for Lord here. There's L-O-R-D capitalized, and there's L capital, small case O-R-D. And the reason that your Bibles print it that way is to distinguish for you that there are different names, Lord, capital, capital letters all across the uh, Bible, if you have your Bible printed that way, indicates that this is Jehovah speaking. This is God speaking to David's Lord. And this my Lord that he's speaking about is his sovereign, his ruler, the one who reigns over David, the one who is in charge, the one who is going to be in charge over all of the earth, That's who he's talking about. So God is saying to David's Lord that he's going to rule. We could say today, because we know now, it's God the Father, if you will, that is speaking to God the Son. And he is saying, and David is writing this as a prophecy, if you will, saying uh, that he is my Lord. Here's the weight of the argument. How can the Messiah be David's son, and be David's Lord at the same time. How can David speak about his son who is coming after he dies, is not yet living on earth, hasn't arrived on the scene? How can he speak of his son who isn't even here yet as my Lord? That's what he's asking. David, in the present tense, refers to his son as my Lord. No king would do that. No king would do that. Even if his son were living, he wouldn't do that. But his son hadn't even arrived yet. And yet his son was very much alive because he refers to him in the present tense as my Lord. He is right now, as I live, as I write out this psalm, my Lord, He is alive. Can I ask you a question? And this is really what Jesus was asking them. How is that possible? How is it possible that someone who hasn't even been born is alive now? There's only one way. He has to be God. Because God is the only one who is eternal. 
And that is the thrust of his argument. That this one, my son, David is talking about, or David's son, is not only going to be a human being who has come from my loins, but he is also very much alive right now as I am king ruling over Israel. He is my Lord. He's not just my son, he's my Lord. I submit to him. And so should you. So should you. That's really what he's saying. It's in their Psalms. They're the teachers of the law. They're the scribes, the Pharisees, all the ones who are the keepers. And they have been for centuries telling a lie. You understand that? They have been telling a lie. Because they have been saying all along, the Messiah is David's son. And that's all he is. And if David's son were to be born right now, guess what? We're the rulers in charge. We're, the real, we're really the power behind all of this. And we could have some influence over him. No, you can't. He's standing right in front of you. And he just silenced you. He just silenced you. He alone is God. David's future son has to be the eternal God because he was living present tense at the time of David, and yet he had not been born. He must be both God, eternal, and man, because he has to be David's seed. And so even in the Old Testament, believe it or not, here you have before you evidence that God was going to become a man. They didn't see it. They didn't see it. God has to become a man in order to be David's seed and to reign on his throne. Well, some might say, well, David just was writing a psalm. You know how musicians are. He was just kind of enthusiastically writing things down on a piece of paper and talking really good about, you know, he blurted it out in a moment of exuberance. But the scripture won't let us get away with that. Because in Matthew, it says, how then does David in the spirit say, call him Lord. Well, some say, well, that just means that David, it's referring to David's spirit. You know, David in his own spirit said, my Lord. But Jesus says in Mark's gospel, David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord. And so we see the source of David's penmanship. Who wrote the scripture? God. God uses people. He used people, many people. They were scribes, and they wrote exactly what he wanted to write. And by the Holy Spirit, who is God, David penned these words. The Lord said to my Lord, God has made this Jesus. Peter later said, both Lord and Christ. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became the Son of David and will establish his throne on the earth. You can be sure of that. Jesus Christ himself will one day rule over this whole planet. He will rule over everything. And the leaders, and the, the Bible says, and the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But the religious leaders wanted just a man a man they could influence, a man just like them. They did not want God ruling over them. And they had resisted God for, this, for centuries. Remember the parable Jesus told. 
that he sent servants to them, seeking repentance, seeking fruit from them. And they rejected all of them. They stoned some. They killed others. And then he says, I will send my son. Surely they will listen to him. And what did they do at the end of the week? They put him on a cross and they crucify him. And they say declaratively, we will not have this man reign over us. They did not want God ruling over them. They wanted to be in charge. And many people resist God today. The same reason. Even though he is God, they're saying, look, I want to rule my own life. I want to live my life my own way. I want to be in charge. I will not have this man rule over me. But I'm telling you something. He is both Lord and Christ. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the one to whom every knee shall bow of things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will one day declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They had resisted God for centuries. And these people were being taught by the false teachers. Their religious leaders were blind, leaders of the blind. They are being taught by false teachers. And so Jesus turns from the religious leaders and the religious teachers, and he speaks to his disciples now. And he speaks to them loud enough for everybody to hear. I, you know, I, I don't like movies that portray Jesus because they always have him in these goofy-looking robes that, and he's always very... almost like Bambi, I don't know. I, you know? He was meek. He was mild to people who would listen, to people who had ears to hear. But I'm telling you, when he he came up to false teachers, to false religious leaders, um, I would not want to be on the other side of his anger and his, um, his words. And he says, in the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And here we have the judge of all the earth speaking condemnation upon religious people. Not the sinners, I mean, they are sinners for sure, but on the religious people. On, they, these men were frauds. And I want to say something to you. Religion will never get you to heaven. It's impossible. You can't get to heaven by your good work. You can't get to heaven by being religious. And these men were religious frauds. They had the appearance of being spiritual. They had the appearance of being spiritual men. But Jesus said in another place, these are men who are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They appear outwardly to be holy, to be honorable, to be respectful men. But they will receive the greater condemnation. And I want to say that there are men like this today, many who lead megachurches, who take advantage of the poor, the widows, the disadvantaged, with promises that if they just send more money in, if they just keep sending more money in, their wages, their earnings, and everything else, that God has to bless you. He has to give you double what you give to Him, or quadruple, or whatever number they come up with this week. And these are religious frauds who are taking advantage of the poor 
and and disadvantaged, giving them hopes and dreams that they cannot fulfill. They rob people through their radio ministries, their TV programs, their slick Madison Avenue mailings, and and they travel the world to gain followers who will pour more money into their ministries. Churches are filled with men and women today who love the titles. They love the honor, just like these Pharisees and Sadducees and all the rest. They love titles of doctor and reverend and right reverend and holy father and most holy father and all this kind of stuff. And they wear backwards collars, you know, to make themselves look more religious. I remember years ago that Jeff, uh, Jeff Tischler was, went into Safeway to buy something for lunch. And there was this guy walking in Safeway in this long religious robe with a huge cross on him in a very holy way walking past the produce section. And Jeff said, I'm going to witness to this guy. And he, and he comes up and he says, you appear to be a religious man. And he goes, oh, you noticed, did you? you know? And Jeff pulls out of his backpack a great big red letter edition Bible and he throws it down right on top of the meat. And he says, hey, I want to talk to you about the scripture, what God has to say. He was a religious, not Jeff, but this religious pomp and ceremony guy was a religious fraud. He didn't know the Lord. He can wear whatever he wants to wear. He can have the title of pastor or religious leader of some sort, of father, holy father, whatever they want to say. But he's a religious fraud, and they're leading people to hell. Do you think Jesus was upset? I think so. Beware, beware, beware. They love the honor of people recognizing them as holy men or the prestige of invitations to pray at prayer breakfasts or preach at conferences or have their names splashed on billboards next to the freeway. They love the book circuit where they can sign books and tell about their latest uh, offering. They love the radio interviews and the TV specials and the accolades poured out upon them. And for a pretense, they make long prayers to make them appear more holy. And all the while, they are robbing widows, the disadvantaged and poor and defenseless people. And they fatten themselves up for the slaughter. Beware, Jesus says. These will receive the greater condemnation. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? These men are not saved. And he is basically turning to the crowd and saying, all those guys that just came to see me, they don't know God. Because here I am. And they don't know me. They abuse the poorest, the weakest, the most vulnerable people in our society. Look throughout the world at the great cathedrals. Do you know how those were built? On the backs of poor people. People who gave money to build cathedrals so that their sins could be forgiven. If you just give more... We'll have a bigger cathedral, and your sins will be forgiven. Martin Luther protested the abuse of the poor by protesting the sale of indulgences. He, spoke, he was a Catholic priest, and he spoke out against the Catholic Church in protest. That protest was heard loud and clear and became what is now known as the Protestant, Protestant Reformation. Do you know that you're a Protestant today? 
but how many of you are protesting as Martin Luther did? These same abuses have crept into the Protestant circles by false teachers who enrich themselves by taking advantage of the poor. And Jesus condemns it and says that such religious charlatans will receive greater condemnation. It's not that these religious men and women are just simply mistaken. They are condemned and they will face greater condemnation than the rest of the unbelievers. And in Luke 21, it seems like a shifting of gears, but it's really not. He looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Do you know something? Though the religious leaders of the day had no place in their heart for the disadvantaged, they had no place in their heart for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the people who were outcasts of society. I'll tell you something, God does. It's very, very clear in the scripture. And I think that the Lord is saying, look, here's how the religious rulers have treated those that I hold in dear esteem in my heart. You know the Bible says about widows and orphans? It says that he is a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. The law of God commands in Exodus 22, 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. God himself in Deuteronomy 10.18 says this, He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. You know that the uh, book of Deuteronomy also allows for widows, orphans, those who are disadvantaged, to go into the fields at harvest time after the fields had been harvested. The, the farmers were told, do not cut into the corners of your fields. You leave that. Because I am leaving that for a special people of my heart, God is saying. That's the widows, the orphans, the disadvantaged. Let them go and freely take of the fruit that I have provided to you. You go ahead and do your rows and, and bring down most of the harvest. You can have all of that, but you leave some. You take care of the widows. You take care of the orphans. You take care of the disadvantaged because God has taken care of you. And a curse was placed on anyone who would pervert justice to a widow. In Luke chapter 20, verse 47, the scribes are rebuked because they ignored the scripture, did not care for the weak, the hurting, the widows, the orphans. Instead, they were the ones who were devouring widows' houses and for a pretense making long prayers. The first dispute in the church, do you know what it was over? The care of widows. The care of widows. Some thought that they weren't being fairly... um, taken care of. And so it was the beginning and the establishing of deacons in a church setting, where deacons were called, they were to be holy men, men who had one thing, one passion uh, in the church. And you know what that was? To take care of the disadvantaged. That is the calling of the deacons in this church. Do you know that? It is your calling to look for, in our midst, And outside of our midst, those who are disadvantaged, those who are widows, 
those who are orphans, those who are in need, and do not harden your heart against them, but generously provide, generously give, generously take care of them. In 1 Timothy 5, it says this, Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So he's saying this, first priority, if you're a child or a grandchild or any relative of a widow, step up to the plate. You take advantage. Don't take advantage of her. You, you take the necessary action, necessary action and you care for them. You take it out of your own pocket. You provide for them. But there are some who won't do that. There are some who won't do that. And so it is our responsibility as believers, and particularly as the church, to care for those who are truly widows. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. And I think that this widow that Jesus pointed to and he said to his disciples, look at her, watch her. And as they watched her, Jesus was really saying to, to them about her, here is a woman who trusts me. How many of you, can I ask, you don't have to show me your hands, have taken everything you have, emptied your bank account, emptied your pockets, and given it all to the Lord because you trust him to provide for tomorrow? That's what she did. That's what she did. And what he is really saying here is this. Here is a woman who knows the special place that she has in my heart. And she is willing to sacrifice everything for me because she knows tomorrow I'm going to take care of her. That's faith. That's faith. She trusted the Lord that way. I'm not asking you to empty your bank account. I don't think the Lord is asking you here in this passage to do that. I think what he is saying to you, look, if she is willing to trust the Lord, don't you want to have a part in caring for her? Don't you want to have a part in taking care of this widow who is trusting the Lord? Show that you're trusting in him too. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I think it's obvious that she fully trusted in the one who promised to be a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. The question for us is, will we do the same? Will we care for those in our midst? James chapter 1, verse 27, we'll end with this verse and the meeting will be over. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. Lord, we cry out to you that you would help us to see clearly the things that are taught in Scripture, that we would not harden our hearts like the religious leaders of uh, the day did. I pray, Lord, that we might be tender and affectionate towards you and the things that are on your heart. Lord, help our hearts to beat after your own heart. Lord, we pray that we would open our eyes to see the widows, the orphans, the disadvantaged, the, the ones who are poor and suffering, and that we might take uh, every step necessary to care for them to provide for them, and to do the things that you have asked us to do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.